Grab your Bible if you would. Let's go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. As you're turning there, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about uh, our family. We, um, a couple years ago, were able to go to Disney World. And uh, one of the things about my, my family, you know, that I think is important for you to understand this story is my wife grew up in what I would call a Disney home. Like they loved Disney growing up. I grew, grew up never having gone to Disney World, uh, but they grew up in kind of a Disney home, and, and which means that uh, whenever we went to Disney World, my wife had a very clear game plan. And you're supposed to be going to the happiest place, supposedly, on earth, and, um, and, and, and to experience vacation, but what we felt like was it was a military school. Like literally, we're up early and we're out early because we got to get in the front of the line and this fast pass and she's got this whole agenda where we're moving from one thing to the next and we got this show and we're going to go do that ride and we're going to do it in this order and you know, so this whole time we're supposed to be experiencing, you know, having the Disney experience and in an attempt to get the Disney experience, we were making sure we were hitting everything there was to have. We had this agenda mapped out in all the places. When the kids were asking, hey, can we take pictures with Mickey Mouse? We were like, we ain't got time for Mickey. We got to get the next ride. Like, we didn't even debrief. Like, how was the ride? It was like, who cares how the ride was? We got to get to the next one. You know, but by the end of the week, we're just dragging. It's like we're, you know, there's, there's crying and there's screaming and there's weeping. And that's just me. And... Not even counting the kids. Um, and here's what, here's, what, here's what we look back on it, we realize this. In our attempt to get the Disney experience, we were so tied to our agenda and what we had to do and what we had to do next and what we had to do the thing after that, that we actually missed the experience. We got so tied to our game plan and our agenda that we missed out really in many ways on the very, th- the, the, the very thing we were there for, which is to enjoy the family and have a, have a, a vacation and, and experience this thing together. Now, I really believe that that describes the Christian life for most people. Is that what, what, what Jesus has offered us, we're gonna see this morning, is life. Not just any kind of life, extraordinary, abundant life. That's what Jesus came uh, to, to give us. And, and somewhere along the way in the Christian life, and, and in life in general, we, we've kind of minimized the Christian life to this agenda of things that I've got to do for Jesus. And in the midst of doing all this stuff for Jesus, I forget Jesus. I've got to get this done. Then I've got to get to the next thing. And then the next thing. And then the next thing. And before we know it, we've lived our life and there's been no joy of the Lord in our heart. No personal encounter with him. No sense of experiencing this abundant life that Jesus told me that he had for me. And and even beyond just doing stuff for the Christian life, just in life in general, as believers, we can be so distracted by all of the pulls and the different directions of where we're looking to get more joy out of life that we miss the very source of life that's already been given to us in Christ. We got to get to work. We got to get to the to the to the game. We got to get to the practice. We got to get to the uh, grocery store. We got to get all of this, and we're just going, 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 trying to create a life for ourselves and our family, and we're missing life altogether. There's some people in this room, and you may be in this room. You're not a follower of Jesus, and here's why you're not a follower of Jesus. It's because you look at Christianity as this agenda, as this rule book that if I follow Jesus, and there's all these things that I got to do, I don't know that I want to do any of them. I don't know when I'm going to give up the things that I would be doing to do those things. 
And you miss the point that, that following Jesus is not about what you do for him. It's resting in what he's done for you and finding the life that you're looking for every place else, all the other places, in him and him alone. And that's what I want us to see this morning. In John chapter 10, this is a very powerful passage of Scripture. Jesus has been um, performing various miracles and In the midst of loving people, preaching, and performing miracles, he's facing resistance around every corner from the religious leaders. The religious leaders have turned the relationship with God into this structured life that you really got to do all of these things, and God may love you and embrace you in the end, and they've, they've made this relationship that God wants with humanity into just this big list of rules. And Jesus comes and says, no, it's about a relationship with me. In John chapter 9, he performs a miracle. The religious leaders are discrediting the miracle, and here's the essence of what their problem with Jesus was, is that they were, they were teaching that, that a relationship with God was not found in Jesus, it was found in their religious structure. And so when they were doing this with Jesus, discrediting him and teaching this alternate pathway to life, Jesus in chapter 10, he, he wants us to know, hey, I'm, I'm gathering sheep. Like, I'm gathering sheep to belong to me, people to belong to me. And he's going to talk about this gathering of sheep, and he's going to speak directly to the religious leaders, and he's going to talk about himself and them and us and what he offers us in this passage of Scripture. So here's the context. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read verse 10 and then a few verses later on as we get into the sermon. But getting you to to verse 10, uh, Jesus uses an agricultural metaphor. Describing this thing that he's doing with gathering sheep, he basically describes this. There's a shepherd, there's sheep, there's a sheep pen, there's a gate to the sheep pen, and then there's also thieves and robbers who are trying to steal the sheep. They're going in back doors and trying to pull the sheep out of the pen. They're trying to point to different pens that the sheep can go to. And Jesus is going to talk about it. I don't want to go into all of this, but Jesus is going to show us, hey, listen, I'm the shepherd who's gathering his sheep. My flock, my people, that's the pen. The gate to get in is also me. So I'm both the shepherd and the gate, and I'm inviting you in. And and then he's going to talk about these thieves that want to come in and harm the sheep. And and this is what gets us to verse number 10. If you're with me, say the Bible is true. Verse 10 says this. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I want you to hear this. Jesus makes this very clearly here. And there's a contrast that I want us to see as well. He, He makes this very clear here that I am the source of life. Like I am the source of life. And we're gonna see in a minute, not just any kind of life, abundant life. But this is in contrast with the thief. The thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy Jesus came to give life. And I want you to see the contrast here. The contrast is important because he's telling us that there is a thief that wants to take our life. And then there is this, what he's gonna refer to himself as a shepherd who wants to give us life. And this is the contrast. This is the the tension we find even today in the world. There is the gospel of Jesus going, hey, do you want life? It's found in me. And everything outside of me is not going to lead to life. It's actually there to kill, to steal, and to destroy. So the question we got to ask is this. Who's the thief in the passage? Who's the thief in the passage? Well, we oftentimes will immediately go, us, Satan. And while that's not altogether not true, I mean, it's, it's, there is some truth to that. Contextually, 
Jesus refers to the thief earlier, and when he talks about the thieves and robbers, he's, robbers, he's actually referring to the religious leaders. Now watch why this is important to understand. It's because Jesus is referring to them as robbers and thieves because they were, they were teaching that there are other pathways to a relationship with God outside of Jesus. They were teaching that there are other pens that you could be in and other gates you could go through. And Jesus is saying that this is the thieves and robbers. They're trying to take the sheep. They're trying to steal the sheep. And so here's what I want you to see. The point he's making is this. Who are the thieves in the passage? Anyone who would offer an alternate pathway to life outside of Jesus. That's who the thief is. In our culture, it can show up a thousand different ways. We're gonna look at a few in a moment. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is a massive truth. Listen, if you want to walk in the fullness of life of, of Christ, whether you're a believer or not a believer, hear this truth. Apart from Jesus, every pathway to life leads to death. Apart from Jesus, every pathway to life leads to death. Look what he says here again in verse 10. The thief only, comes only, there's only one purpose the thief comes. Who is the thief? Anyone who offers a pathway to life outside of Jesus. And where does this path outside of Jesus leads us? It leads us to death. How do we know this? The, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. He came to steal our joy, to kill our soul, and destroy our eternity. And church family, listen, you need to hear this. Any pathway that this world has to offer or religion has to offer that says to you that you can have salvation and life outside of a personal relationship with Jesus will ultimately not give you the life that it promises. It'll actually kill, steal, and destroy your eternity. This is what Jesus wants us to see very clearly. And this, this issue with, with uh, offering alternate pathways to life, this has been going on since the creation. Like if you go back to Genesis chapter three, you have this, this beautiful environment, this beautiful garden. Adam and Eve have been given life by God himself. The, the scriptures up until this point literally says he breathed the breath of life into their nostrils. And then he gave them this creation to sustain their life. And he was going to live among them so they can enjoy him who is the source of their life. But what does the, the evil one do? The evil one comes up to Eve and he offers another pathway of life. He comes up and says, hey, why did God tell you you can't have the stuff that's good for you? Well, he, he told us we can have all of this. We just couldn't have that. Ah, here's why. That's where life is really found. You see, what God is doing, the enemy says, he's withholding life from you. He's not giving life. If you really want life, you gotta have it. You'll be just like God. You won't, you won't depend upon him as the source of life. You will have life. And what did that lie lead to? It led to what? It led to death. Spiritually cut off from a relationship with God who was the source of life, 
spiritually dead in that moment. Now, physically, we die, and eternally, we, we, are, we go to a place called hell, which is a, an eternal death for those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus. See, that great deception of there's an alternate path to life, what did it do? It stole their joy and their relationship with God. It killed their soul. It ultimately wanted to destroy their eternity. And can I just tell you, ever since then, the enemy has been placing thieves of humanity in front of us ever since. Alternate pathways of life, alternate ways to have life, alternate ways to have salvation, alternate ways to know God. And here's the thing, I love this. Andrew Abair, who is now the pastor at Moberly Baptist Church, a great pastor, so grateful to have uh, this godly man in our community, close friend. Here's what Andrew says about this. He says this, he says, Satan wears many masks. Satan wears many masks. And what he does is he has these thieves who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And here's what those thieves do. In different masks, they tell the same story. There's an alternate pathway to life and salvation. And the end result of every single one of these pathways are exactly the same. It leads to death. Let me give you a couple that are common in our world today. We have moralism. What is moralism? Moralism is this idea, and you'll recognize as soon as I say it, when it is, we just want to be good people. Just be a good person. How many of you heard that? Man, I love so-and-so. They're just a good person. They're just a good person. No talk of a relationship with Jesus. And so a lot of people live, and they buy into the life of the thief. I just want to be a good person. Now, here's, here's let me get two questions. Blow up moralism. Just two questions because they cannot be answered. When you have someone who follows moralism, and maybe some of you in this room, you're like, I just want to be a good person. Being a good person means, man, I'll enjoy life, you know, kind of the karma thing. If I'm good, good comes back. And if I'm good, God will embrace me. Because at the end of the day, God loves good people. He hates bad people. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm actually a pretty good person. Two questions that blow that up. Number one, how good is good enough? No one can answer that. How good is good enough? Like, so is, 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 is the threshold murder? Like, I know I'm not perfect, but I never killed anybody. Winner, right? Like, you, you've, you've arrived. You didn't kill anybody. Only well, stabbed a few people. Like, it's no big deal. I'm not... Well, it's, it's not like, it's like, okay, so I, I, I do this, but at least I don't do this. How good is good enough? No one can answer that. Here's the second question that blows up moralism. Who's good do you follow? You do realize in our nation today, there are a lot of goods that are out there that we're being preached to follow. Like there's conservative good, there's liberal good, there's religious good, there's non-religious good, there's anti-religious good. Like there's a lot of versions of what good is. In fact, in our culture, we have no way of defining good. You know why? Because if good is self-determined, that means it's subjective to the people or the culture in which that good is proposed. And if there is no standard of good, then, then there is no way for us to know if we're hitting the right good. It's like walking into a shooting range and someone saying, I'll give you a million bucks if you hit the right target. And the problem is there's 150,000 targets you're shooting at and you don't know which one is the right one. Moralism fails. 
We can never be good enough. In fact, here's what happens in society. When, when, when moralism becomes your, your motive of kind of this is how I know God or this is how I define life, either leads you to great arrogance because now you're just comparing yourself to everyone because why? If being good is the standard, then you gotta make sure you're better than everybody else. Well, now you're judgmental and arrogant. Here's the second thing it leads you to. It leads to this, ultimately, this great disappointment because you've come to realize over time, if you really look at your life objectively, you're not that good. Like you, maybe at seasons, impressed with you, but as you, if you were honest, you wouldn't be impressed with you. And I'll just prove that. Let's, let's say I had the ability right now to have the thoughts that you've had in your brain the last 24 hours put on the screen right here. How many of y'all want to play that game? I thought we were good, though. Oh, I ain't that good. Okay. Moralism, right? What about this one? We got hedonism. Hedonism, what is hedonism? That's just the pursuit of pleasure. And by the way, this dominates our culture as well. In fact, it it dominates a lot of things in our culture. It kind of weaves its way through almost everything. What is this pursuit of pleasure? It really is anything that's self-fulfilling and self-gratifying. So it's sex, it's success, it's accomplishments, it's, it's acquiring things that make me happy. So really, it's just all about this. What do I feel? And happiness and pleasure, it's the highest good. And so in our culture, what do we say? What's the great mantra we give people who might be in a moral dilemma? What do we ask them? What feels right to you? What makes you most happy? Do what makes you, that's hedonism. That's us saying, so listen, what if what feels good to me is punching you in the face? We gonna play that game? I'm being serious, like, like that we hit a dead end, all of a sudden we see that it doesn't really work itself out when you start really logically thinking about that. If hedonism is the highest good, then what does that do for marriages? If I'm a hedonist, would my wife ever be satisfied or content in the marriage or or feel like the marriage is protected if my life is defined by the pursuits of my flesh? That doesn't even work in relationships. Leads to death. By the way, we're the most sexually expressive culture ever. And we're still not happy. So listen to this. Just think about the, the, that's mind-blowing. We are a culture that celebrates happiness and personal fulfillment more than any other culture, and yet we're less happy and less fulfilled. What does that tell us about that pathway? Here's number three, secularism. Say, what is secularism? This is just a self-determined life without God or religion. Secularism, it's a self-determined life without God or religion. And this is, by the way, this is the kind of the, the, the mantra of today in our culture. If we can just establish a society that's independent of some sort of deity or religious structure, We would be happy, self-determined. By the way, that's predominant in our culture, right? So what does that look like? Here's here's what it looks like in a sentence. You do you. You do you. That's what it looks like, right? What What is you do you? You determine what is right. You determine what is good. You determine what is best for you. What is that saying? I am the God of my own life. I can set up a life 
where I am the, the moral compass. And here's what's crazy. We don't even know what's best for us to order at Chick-fil-A whose menu hasn't changed in a decade. And now I'm the, supposed to be the superior one over my own life to know what is best. Like a self-determined life is a life that's gonna be jacked up in a million different ways. And, and, and let me just look at our social way we're made up. So this, this experiment, secularism, has been kind of going around. It's been a hot topic and huge movement very predominant in our culture over the last 25 years. And guess what it's led us to? We are the depressed generation. The more we think that we find life by having a self-determined life, that I get to be the greatest expression of who I think I should be, which is what we're hearing today in our culture, are we not? Why is it if that's where happiness is found, are we seeing the suicide rate continually climb? So much depression and anxiety? Could it be that we grabbed a hold of the thing that we thought would make us fulfilled and we look at it and we go, and it didn't do it? This is why Jesus says what he says. The thief, he doesn't come to give you life. He comes to offer life, and in offering life, he's actually gonna take what life you have, and you're gonna be left broken and destroyed in the end. And this is what the enemy does. Every pathway to life apart from Jesus leads to death. Jesus is on the only hope. Jesus is the only pathway. I want you to see the contrast here and write the second truth down. Look at the contrast again, verse 10. The thief comes only to kill or to steal, to kill and destroy. So again, every Pathway apart from Jesus leads to death. But I came, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The, the word I hear in the original language is emphatic. It, it could be translated like this. The thief comes, he comes to kill, to steal, destroy. But I, even I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Write this down if you're taking notes. Don't miss this. Jesus came to give us extraordinary life. Jesus came to give us extraordinary life. Look again. The thief came to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but I came, even I came, that they may have life, but not just any kind of life, abundant life. The word abundant there is a word that literally could be translated excess. Not just life, an excess of life, an extraordinary life. It's a word that means unusual or remarkable, to go beyond the ordinary, a special quality. So hear me say this, eyes right here for a second, believer. Jesus did not come, an unbeliever in the room. Jesus did not come to extract your joy. He came to offer you lasting joy. He doesn't want to take joy from you. He wants to give joy to you. Like he didn't come to rob you of this, this life. He came to trade you a life that leads to death for a life that is abundant, that's extraordinary, that's amazing, that is of excess, that's irregular, that's not like anything this world has to offer. That's what Jesus came for. 
This changes the way we see our own faith as Christians, and it changes the way if you're an observer going, man, I don't know that I want to be a follower of Jesus because it just seems like a bunch of rules, and it seems like i got to give up a lot of stuff in order to follow him. Let me say this very clearly. To follow Jesus demands that you abandon everything else you live for. You say, well, that's why I don't want to become a Christian. I really like the things that I do. But don't miss this. To abandon all the things you've lived for for something that's so much greater. You think you have life, but you don't. Jesus wants to give you like the real thing of what you're trying to find in the world. That's the exchange. Like that's the trade. That's what he wants to offer you. See, it's coming to the realization, church, this, is, this, this was so beautiful this week, that following Jesus is this trade. Trade for, for something that's of no value, for something that is so valuable, no price tag could be put on it. And you see this throughout the New Testament both in the actions of the disciples and the, and, the, and the teaching of Jesus. So think about this. Peter, James, and John are on the side of the, the, the bank and they're putting their nets and they got a business and they've been catching fish and there they are living this dream of a family business and here we are. Jesus comes along and he preaches to them and he gives this invitation. Hey, come, follow me. And for the rest of your life, you're gonna join me in a relationship. We're gonna change the world together. Notice what happens in the story of Peter, James, Andrew, and John. It says immediately, like in that moment, they left their boats and their nets and their father, and for the rest of their life, they followed Jesus. Why in the world would they leave all of that? Because they understood that Jesus was better. They left what was lesser to find what is greater. Jesus was asked a question one time. He said, What is the kingdom of heaven like? And he gave two beautiful analogies. He says, the kingdom of God is like a treasure. It's buried in a field, and a man was walking through the field, and he finds this treasure. And when he unpacked the treasure, the treasure was so valuable, it says, with joy, he, he covered it back up, and he goes, and he liquidates all of his property all of his possessions, sells his house, gets rid of his 401k, everything that he once thought valuable, he sold it so he could scrape up the money to go buy the land so he could have the treasure. With joy, he got rid of what he once held valuable in order to possess something of much greater value. The other analogy, he's just like a merchant who was in search of a Priceless pearl, a pearl of great price. And he searched everywhere. But when he found that pearl, overjoyed, he goes and he does the same thing. He sells everything and he collects his money and he goes. Now I want you to think about how crazy this is. You're talking about a pearl for crying out loud. And you just sold everything that you've built in your life. Imagine that conversation as he's getting his money. He's telling his friends, like, I'm going to buy a pearl. Like, what are you doing? You just sold everything. 
You don't know where you're going to live. You don't know what you're going to eat. You're going to put all of that in a pearl? What are you thinking? I would imagine the merchant would look at them with joy on his face and say, ah, but you have never seen the pearl. Because if you've seen the pearl, you would do the same thing. Jesus is offering the pearl of great price, abundant life, a relationship with him. And the truth is what he's offering us is what the human heart has been longing for since the fall of humanity. See, why is, why is the life in Jesus such an abundant life? Because life in Jesus is a relationship with the creator. We were created for this. We were made to know him and to walk with him and to fellowship with him and have this relationship. Be- because sin destroyed this, humanity has been in this desperate pursuit of any pathway possible to get this thing called life, but all of the paths of the world only lead to death. But Jesus says, I came that I might give you what was lost in the garden, which is myself in a relationship with me because when you have me, you have everything. Nothing this world offers can satisfy. Why? When you were made for the creator, the creation can never satisfy. When you were made for the creator, the creation can never satisfy. I love how C.S. Lewis frames this. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So we find ourselves grabbing and clawing and fighting to get the things that we think will make us happy, the stuff and the relationships and the freedom and all of this stuff. And at the end, we go, wait a second, it's not enough. I still feel empty and miserable and I don't know why. It's because you weren't made for this world. You were made for life in Christ. C.S. Lewis goes on to say it like this. I love this. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, abundant life, in other words, is offered us like an ignorant child. Watch the imagery here. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You hear the imagery here? He's like, we're so consumed with all the stuff of this world and we don't wanna abandon the stuff of this world to follow Jesus because we're going, man, all of this stuff is really good. And he's saying, we're we're holding on to a dead end life for a life that is true life, abundant life. And the picture is, it's like a kid that wants to stay in the slums playing in mud pies in the ditches And to follow an invitation, hey, why don't you come to the beach with me? Let me put it in East Texas terms. You ready for it? Don't tell anybody from my people, Upshur County, that uh, I use this. Two weeks ago, the, the Yamboree was here. It would be like going to the Yamboree. You already know where this is going. And offering a free trip to Disney World. And then looking you in the face and going, why would I leave this? That, that, is that crazy? 
We got the carnival ride. It's the greatest carnival in Upshur County. Why would I ever leave the Yamboree to go to Disney World? And you want to grab him in the face. Do you hear yourself, man? Like, you're crazy. But isn't that what we do? Jesus is going, look, I know that stuff is fine and great and temporarily it's going to give you the things that you want, but I'm offering you so much more over here and we're so content in the mud pies and in the slums. And they say, man, no, you, I walk away from that because you have given me something so much more. There is no real lasting life that we can experience as humanity apart from a relationship with Jesus. That's why Jesus says what he says in, in John 17. He says this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and your son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. What is Jesus saying there? This is where life is found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The thief has come to take life away. Jesus came to give life. So here's the question we need to get answered. How does Jesus give us life? Isn't that an important question? How does Jesus give us life? How is this gonna be possible if the thief comes to take it away, Jesus comes to give it, how does he give it to us? Look what he says in verse 11. Follow this, verse 11 I am the good shepherd. Remember the analogy. There's sheep, that's us. He's gathering sheep. There's a pen, inviting into relationship. There's a shepherd. Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm not a thief. I didn't come to destroy. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd's job is to give life to his sheep by feeding them and protecting them and being in relationship and proximity and walking with them. Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, but how is he gonna give us life? Listen to this. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is how. You see, humanity has a great enemy. And that enemy wears a thousand different masks, but there's really one agenda that that enemy has. That's to steal and to kill and destroy. And because of sin and death, he is after us. And he is pursuing us, and we are held captive by that great enemy. And he is like a wolf who wants to devour sheep. But here is the beauty of the gospel. Don't miss this. Our shepherd stood between us and the wolf, the wolf that wanted to devour humanity. Jesus stood in our place, and he was devoured by the wolf so that we wouldn't have to be. He took upon the punishment of our sin, he took upon the guilt and shame of our disobedience and rebellion and the death we deserve because of our sin against God. Jesus himself stood and was slain in our place. The good shepherd laid his life down so that we might be forgiven and restored. Now here's the question you gotta ask. Don't not ask this question, ask this question. What good is a devoured shepherd? Right, like if, if, if a shepherd has been devoured, doesn't that mean now the sheep get devoured? The answer is yes, right? 
But he didn't say he was an ordinary shepherd. He's a good shepherd. Notice how this all goes down. Look what he says later on, verse 18. This is the shepherd talking who lays his life down. No one takes it, what it, life, my life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I willfully, when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus stood in our place and he laid willingly his life down for us. He does this on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. You see, this is why he's the good shepherd. He doesn't just lay his life down for the sheep. He lays it down and then takes it back up in resurrection. And in his resurrection, the wolf, the great enemy of sin and death of humanity has been shot with the bullet through the heart and he is no longer powerful in our life. He has been defeated by the good shepherd. The one who leads us and guides us has defeated him once and for all. He has been defanged of his power in our life. And because of the good shepherd laying his life down and taking his life up, and he now is the, is the gate that gets us into the pen so we come by faith in him. Now we belong to him, and guess what? For the rest of our life and the rest of our eternity, we are in relationship with the good shepherd, and he stands, and there is not a wolf that's coming in. He defeats our enemies. He leads us beside the green pastures. He leads us beside the still waters. We get to enjoy life in relationship with him. And yes, are there gonna be long nights and hard nights and nights where we're afraid because the wolves of the world are howling around us? Yes, but we are safe in the pen with a shepherd who laid his life down and took it back up again. That's eternal life. That's the life that Jesus came to offer. And I'll tell you, just the story itself resonates so much with me. When you think about the pathways of life apart from Jesus that leads to death and then finding extraordinary life in Jesus. Last week, I celebrated 29 years as a follower of Jesus. And, um, and I, I just was thinking about this Sunday and thinking about this passage of Scripture and I'm just overwhelmed at God's grace. And I'm humbled by God's grace. And the life that I have now. You know, I was, some of y'all know my story. I was raised in a Christian home. My, my, my dad got saved when I was real young. I was just a young boy. He gave, gave his life to Jesus. Had 180 in his life. My mom got saved. We began to go to church. I really don't remember the early days before Jesus, all I remember is really the days with Jesus. So I, I heard the gospel in church every Sunday, every Wednesday. I mean, we, we were Sunday night people at church. My mom played the piano. I mean, we were just in, all in. And I, I remember growing up and hearing the gospel so many times, like, like many of you in this room. And I heard the gospel. I could tell you the gospel. But, but to be honest with you, I didn't believe the gospel. Like, I intellectually, I'm like, of course, Jesus lived and he died and resurrected. But... It did not penetrate my heart. It certainly did not transform my life. And that conviction began early in my life. When I was probably 11, 12 years old, I began to have a stirring of, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't have a relationship with God. You're uncertain of your eternity. And um, even at that young age, 12 and 13 years old, I just began to blow God off. Like I, I, can, I can remember that. Thinking to myself, yeah, but like mom and dad are, they're good, and if they're getting in, I'm getting in. 
So I just begin to trust in moralism. I was trusting in, in goodness, goodness of my family. I'm, I'm a pretty good kid. I don't make a lot of mistakes. And so I, even though I knew the gospel, I didn't believe the gospel. And because of that, I started resting in a false hope. And the problem is, like as I got older, it, if I, I just started feeling more and more empty. By the time I got to 14 years old, I was, I was kind of miserable on the inside because I go to church every single week. I'm telling you, it's a miserable thing. Sit in church every single week to hear messages and sermons preached and you know you have not trusted that. You don't want to be there. You look for excuses not to go. Because at the end of the day, like every week I would hear this and be like, I know that's what I need. I just, just reject it. And that emptiness grew into the point of which I started pouring myself into other things. I poured, began to pour myself into sports. So between the age of 14 and 15, and, and through it my high school, but especially those two ages, I just poured myself in. I tried to find identity and self-worth. I thought, well, if I can just become, like this emptiness I'm feeling, if I can just make a name or be thought of in this way, then there'll be a satisfaction that I get. I remember even telling my coach one time after a horrible loss, I looked at him and I said, man, I, I have nothing to offer. And I was crying. I have nothing to offer anybody except for what I do in sports. And looking back on that now, just to think how lost that, that young 14, 15-year-old kid was at the time. And as I got older, the satisfa- dissatisfaction even grew in my heart and I began to turn to relationships. So I began to have very unhealthy relationships when I was 15, began to act on my flesh, pursued a variety of relationships. And it was like this dual life I was trying to live of trying to find some sort of happiness with self-fulfillment, trying to find it in sports, still going to church. And just this, this life of just roller coaster. And the whole time, no matter what I did or who I dated, like that same emptiness. When I, the problem was this, every time I'd go home at night and I was by myself, I was left with me and my thoughts of emptiness. Turned 16, that, that, that lifestyle continued to f- progress. And by this time, I was so scared to death. I would have a hard time sleeping at night because I would lay in bed at night and I would realize, you're a fraud. You play the game at church, people think you've got it together. You are broken. And I, 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 didn't, I couldn't put it in words, but I remember laying in bed at night going, something is wrong with me. You're a fraud. Not only do you not have a relationship with Jesus, you, you're not gonna spend eternity with him. A lot of sleepless nights. The Holy Spirit calling me. I would say no. And I remember one time just thinking to myself, one of these days, there'll be something that gets my attention. I did not realize that year that that something was going to happen. My best friend was killed in a car accident. Coming back from a football game, I get the news that Michael is dead, and I'm sent into a tailspin. Immediately, two things happened in my heart. One was overwhelming grief I'd never felt in my life. He was like a brother. 29 years later, I can still remember 
where I was, what I felt. Second thing was this paralyzing fear. Michael was 18 months older than me. And I realized this moment, all of this time, I'm kicking this can down the road on a life that I'm not promised tomorrow. For the next few nights, I could not sleep. Lay in bed and just cry. Cry in grief, cry in fear. We had two funerals from Michael, one in Arkansas, one in Oklahoma. After the Oklahoma funeral, we came back. That Friday night, I was supposed to be out with some friends. I already had things planned of what I was going to be doing that I shouldn't have been doing. But because of what I was going through, I went to a revival service. Last place I would have chosen to be three weeks earlier on a Friday night. And the gospel was preached. And I'll just tell you this. I'd heard it a thousand times. It was like I heard it for the very, the very first time. And it was like this. It was like too good to be true. And I knew that's what I needed. And I sensed the Holy Spirit say two things to me. And again, I, this is not, I'm not trying to preach theology. This is what, looking back, I felt in my heart in that moment. Two things. Number one, the Holy Spirit say to me, what more? What more am I going to take from you? The second thing that I felt in that moment was the Holy Spirit say to me, for three years I've called you and you've said no. I will not call you again. I could not wait for the message to be over. And as soon as the invitation was given, I got up. I didn't care. So all these years, the reason I wrestled is because I played the game so good, everyone thought I was a solid Christian. And I was trapped in this life of what people thought I was in this life that I really was. And I didn't feel like I could get out. But when Jesus called my name that night, I didn't care. I got up. My father was kneeling down praying at the altar, and I went and knelt beside him, and I think he was praying for me. I just said, Dad, I don't know Jesus. He said the thing to me that was the greatest thing a person could say, why don't you tell him? And that night, I cried out to Jesus. said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Like, I need to be forgiven. I want to belong to you. I want a relationship with you. I'm done living the life I used to live. I didn't know what that all meant. I just know this. I was a different person when I got up. I was a brand new person. Jesus saved me. Now, I, I didn't, I'm not perfect today. That's 29 years ago. I'm far from perfect today. But I was different from that day moving forward. Jesus saved me. My relationship with sin, though I had not stopped sinning, my relationship with sin changed that day. And I'm here to tell you, listen, following Jesus is not easy. 
But I can tell you 29 years later, after it was the side of the stage, after kneeling down and trusting Jesus, that the life before kneeling of the pleasures of this world and the things that I pursued and the things I tried to find fulfillment in, I pursued all of it. And then now the last 29 years, I'm telling you, I've experienced life on both sides of Jesus and the side with Jesus is far greater than the side without Jesus. And following Jesus isn't easy. It's costly. And there are times, man, it's, it's a fight to say no to the flesh. Sometimes you don't and you fail and you gotta get before the Lord and rest in your salvation and say, Jesus, I need your strength. And sometimes it comes at a cost relationally. Sometimes it means that there are ambitions that you've gotta give away. It's not always easy following Jesus, but here's what I wanna tell you. It's always better following Jesus. Abundant life, life that is real life, is found in him. This is the invitation today. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads. And for those of you in the room, I'm gonna ask our decision encouragers to go ahead and make your way and be available to people. There are some of you in the room this morning and you sense in your heart, you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That today is the day and you can't go on without him. You need to stop playing the game. You need to rest in the freedom that's found in him. Freed from your guilt and your shame. Some of you today, you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Others of you, you've trusted him, but you've never been baptized. And he is worthy of you declaring to the world that you belong to him. But for those of you in this room who are like me, you, you've never received this eternal life. I want you to know the invitation is to, t- is to step out of the pathway that leads to death, which is any pathway without Jesus, and step into relationship with the good shepherd that died and was raised to life. And I'm gonna ask you in just a moment to stand from your seat and to slip out and to come and speak to one of these encouragers. And listen, I'm gonna tell you, I know what you're feeling. I've been there. And when Jesus calls your name and you know he's the only choice, you don't care what people think. So if you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to pray a prayer like this. This is from your heart to him. Jesus, I need for you to save me today. I want a relationship with you starting right now. I turn from what I've been living for and I want you to be my life. Jesus, save me. If you prayed that prayer to receive Jesus with me just a moment ago or you need to be baptized, I wanna encourage you right now, stand up, slip out of your seat, and come to the nearest person who's standing in the aisles for you right now. Don't wait. This is about eternity. If he is calling your name, you step out in faith and say, I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. This takes courage. Don't wait. 
Praise Jesus. Is there anybody else? If you're sensing that, you're not alone. How many of you Christians with your heads bowed and your eyes closed would say this? And I'm not going to call you forward. I just want to see if we can get some honesty in the room today. How many believers in Christ today would say, man, I have been so distracted by the things of this world that I have I've not walked in the abundant life that's mine in Christ? How many of you would say that's you in this room? Just raise your hand. I want to pray over you in a moment. Praise God. All over this room. Here's the thing I want to do. I want to pray over you that the Lord would do a work in your heart. That you would have the the joy of your salvation return to you. But it is going to require, if you want that, there may be some trails that you've taken off that path of following Jesus with everything. And I want to encourage you this morning just repent of anything that would be stealing your joy and hijacking the relationship between you and Jesus and choose the better path. Father, I pray for every hand that was raised a moment ago. Lord, there is so much life that you've given us, so much life. But oftentimes, I know in my own journey, I have sidestepped into lesser pursuits, even as a follower. And Lord, I just want to ask you to give us a spirit of repentance. Lord, that we would remember where you found us. You would would remember that you're the God that saves and that you love us and that you are where our source of joy is found and it is in fellowship with you. God, would you do this? Help us to savor you, to be in your word, to be with your people, to walk and and, and live daily in communion with you. Let this be according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.